And our scripture reading is in 1 John 3, 1. Would you uh, turn with me there? See how great a love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it does not know him. See how great a love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Well, I have had a lot of fun getting ready to present this to you today. Okay, how much am I worth? That's an interesting question, and we'll play with that for a few minutes here. The value the government places upon us. How do you like that number? Did you know that? Do you like that number? You'd like to cash in on it. I would, yeah. yeah. The FDA has a different value. Do you like those numbers? Can you see all right, Evelyn? Am I blocking? I hope I'm not blocking anybody. 7.9 million. Okay. Cigarettes, of course, worth that. Salmonella, you're not worth as much. Department of Transportation figures this is what you're worth. Six million. Wow. Now, they have to do this because if there's some liability cases, they have to have some way to gauge worth. And so they've had a lot of studies, and there's a lot of variety of ways that they go about trying to figure out what a person is worth. And I'm not going to talk about that. I just thought those were interesting. Now, if it's a Homeland Security issue, it's 100% higher. Wow. Wow. You recognize that individual? I thought, that's interesting, all of those figures from the government, but actually, how much am I worth myself individually? This was taking, taken up at uh, Yosemite last summer, where Brendan was with my rest of the grandchildren, except for one, were up there, and they were having a great, great, great time. So I was relaxing, and it was a birthday. We were celebrating, as you could tell. And, uh, but aside from that, that's just a picture. So... I went to the internet and looked up a site that you can see on the bottom of the page, and if you could write that down real quick, you can look up there too. And um, based upon several questions that they ask you about salary, financial history, your health habits, age and sex, that is male or female, marriage, children, and your feelings about your own happiness, things like that, it doesn't take very long, and I found out I was worth How much do you think you're worth? Causes you to kind of reevaluate things? Anyway. But there are other ways that you can value it as well. We each have some chemicals in us, some elements in us that are worth something. All of us have these things. And that's the list. And you can see it's mostly water. Uh, you know, and then it goes down considerably. I don't know if you can see those things. I guess you can. And um, 65 to 90% in each cell is water. And I'm not going to go into all that. But here is the net worth you are from chemicals. Ready? You have those other figures in your brain that we just went over? One buck. So, <laughs> you think that's more reasonable? <laughs> so, <laughs> you feel that maybe? 
you feel like it's lucky to even have that probably. Well, there are other things that are indicators of our worth. And our sermon today is about what am I worth? What are we worth? We are in an epidemic of depression and depression affects our value, at least in our own minds. Depression today, according to the World Health Organization, is the fourth most disabling condition in the world. And it is expected very soon to reach the stage of second. This is a huge, huge epidemic. Only behind in heart disease. And it's interesting, heart disease. Heart disease, that's in all of our organs are affected by our emotions, but it seems like the heart is powerfully affected by our emotions. Right? So if we don't feel good about ourselves, the toll is intense on our body. In the developed world, depression is now already second. So it is a huge epidemic. Have you, if you watch TV, you'll see these, these uh, advertisements about these clinics for depression. You know, they're quite, uh, quite evident that a lot of people have that problem. Many, if not all, the major problems plaguing society have their roots in low self-esteem. And a lot of people believe that. The symptoms? Debilitating unhappiness, ranging from not experiencing pleasure. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine a day that you feel no pleasure? That's a really a dark day. Ranging from that to lacking motivation and loss of appetite and actually going so far as despairing of life itself. This is the black dog that Winston Churchill talked about. And a lot of even great people have had to fight this epidemic of depression. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Depression is a serious issue. Low self-esteem really feeds to depression. It causes us to feel worthless. No value, no confidence in our ability to think, to learn, to understand, or persevere in difficult or complex challenges. Just look at what is on the board right now behind me. It robs us of all of our feelings that we can make any contribution worthwhile at all to life. It just rips that away. Who do you think would really like to have all of us deep in depression? Satan, yeah. Lucifer, right. We don't think we can uh, contribute much. We don't think we can learn. We don't have confidence in our understanding. Have you met people like that? You know, and it can be one day they feel good, the next deal, the next day they're here, and they could hardly get their face off the floor. Nor do they feel they have the power to persevere in difficult or complex challenges. Well, what about life today? Isn't everything complex and difficult? So it robs them of feeling any worth whatsoever, any confidence in themselves. And because of depression, they avoid stimulation or demanding goals. It slows them down to accomplish nothing. Well, who do you think is behind that? Does God ever cause depression? I heard one answer, two answers. 
Does God ever bring about depression? Of course not. We are not made to be depressed people. He made us for joy. But depression takes us entirely the wrong way. It robs us of our ability to be functioning at our top level or even at any level whatsoever. And instead we seek for a safe and familiar and undemanding place. The least. And we're happy just to get by with the least. Our ambition tends to be flat. We are emotionally, creatively, spiritually just flat. We aspire to less and are less likely to achieve. And it's so amazing that this one thing, so closely related to how we feel about ourselves, if it's upside down, we are totally devastated. Instantaneously. And it's like, how do you ever get out? It's really a difficult situation. Relationships tend to become toxic rather than nourishing for people who are depressed. Treating others with respect, benevolence, goodwill, and fairness becomes more difficult since everything is perceived as against us and a threat. This is a setup for unbelievable disaster, isn't it? Who do you think sends this our way? All right, got a variety of opinions. Well, just to, quickly here, I'm, like, I'm going to take the one more minute on this. While we are not responsible for controlling any other part of our body, they're automatic, self-regulating. We are responsible to program our minds. Ours is the only species capable of formulating a vision of self-worth to, to develop convictions and ideals. We can develop pattern patterns habit patterns that fulfill, cripple, or incapacitate our godlike potential to fulfill or betray the reason for our existence. And a lot of it hangs on how we feel about ourselves, whether we feel we're worth something or whether we feel we don't and therefore are depressed. What determines our worth? Well, it's not chemicals, really, is it? It's not our lifestyle, marriage, like that test that I took, our health, our attitudes. Is it our wealth? Heard about this gentleman with a lot of wealth in our Sabbath school class. You know, is it are the opinions of others that make us feel worthwhile? Or our own opinions of ourselves? No. Self-worth comes from something else. What does it come from? Hmm. John says, the value God places on us? Seems to be so, isn't it, from the verse that we read at the beginning? The value that God places upon us. I want to tell you a story you're all familiar with in the Bible, the prodigal family. <laughs> we call it prodigal son, you know, but it's prodigal family. When you have a family involved in anything, any member of the family, it's, it sucks the whole family. Two sons in search of greatness. They wanted to do something great for themselves. They just went about it two different ways, didn't they? Son number one pursued the fast life. He thought that's the way to really get off in this world, to get well, to get on top of things, to go to the big city and to do all the great things and get exposed to as much stuff as you possibly can get exposed to and enjoy all that life had to offer. 
and um, believing that instant satisfaction proves worthiness. If he feels good, he is good. He rejected the discipline and obedience of his father, and he reje rejected his father's life. Are those big enough to read? You can see them okay? You can't. Some can, some can't. All right. That's the first son. Okay. Second son. He pursues discipline and obedience. Just the opposite. Just what the other son rejected, he goes in that direction. The father, sometimes that happens. You get two kids, they just are totally opposite of each other. Uh, believing his loyalty makes him worthy. One said, fast life, all the fun, exciting things, all of the proofs of success is self-worth. The other one says, no, stay at home, being loyal, that makes me worthy because I'm going to get the prize at the end. Right? The rabbit and the hare. Now, notice this. Both are unaware of their father's love. These two lived in a home of a man, according to the story, who really did know how to love. And he loved his kids. But they didn't know it. They weren't able to feel it, to receive it. Hmm. They weren't even aware of his love. How did they respond to love? Number one, well... The first son, when he went out and he tried all of his horrible things in, in fast life, and he found, well, all of those fast things, and he found it took away everything he had, he woke up one day in a pigsty, didn't he? And all of a sudden, awareness came in, probably the first time in his life. Awareness that said, I don't have to be living this way. Maybe I should go back home, and living as a servant in my father's house is better than this. There was some real adjustments on his self-worth, wasn't there? Right there. So he decides, broken, repentant, he returns home, willing to be a nothing. He wanted to be in everything. Now he's said, oh, nothing's okay with me. He feels unworthy. So number two, he feels worthy. He stays home, but he is angry. Because when the, uh, the son number one comes back, he is met by his father. And we love that scene of the father who had been going out all day long and looking, waiting, hoping, praying that his lost son would come back, his prodigal would return. And one day he sees him coming. And he recognizes pretty soon that it's his son. And his heart is so thrilled and he rushes over and he puts his whole weight and falls upon his son. I imagine there are tears just pouring out of his eyes. He doesn't care what has happened, the story, the horrible things that have happened. He doesn't care about any of that. His son is back. And when his son is back, that for the father means he's fully back. He doesn't have to earn his way back because the father already has a value on that son. Are you getting it? The father has a value. It would still be a while before the son would understand that his father had always been that way and his father has always held that value and that value that was in the eyes of the father would mean everything to that boy. That would soon become his value. Who does the father represent? 
Does God have a value on us? Do you know what that value is? Not about generically everybody, but about you. Are you aware of that, of your self-worth? Do you realize that if maybe, according to what we've talked about so far, if you don't know that, you're vulnerable to depression. And you know what depression does? It sucks everything out of you, and you can no longer function well. It's absolutely essential that we know our value in the eyes of the Lord. We must know that, or we can be so easily thrown down in a truck roll over us, so quickly and enabled. Okay, here we go. The father is constant in his love for both. The uh, second son, he is so angry that the, older, the other brother has come back and has the feast and everything. His value is not changed. He's not devalued. After all, you know, it's that first son who understood that he was nothing in his own eyes, but everything in his father's eyes that really counted. The uh, second son, he thought he was everything in his own eyes and didn't understand anything at all about the father's eyes. Anything at all. I think about this and I pray about this. And there are just, oh, times when this just floods my soul as I ask myself the question, do my children know that I love them unconditionally? Do they know that I love them that much? Do they even sense that I care? Or are they sometimes like these two that just didn't have any idea what the father was like? It's so important that we send these messages properly and that they get through. The father being constant in his love for both, he still can't make things change in their viewpoints. God has to bring some catastrophes, some troubles, until they're broken, repentant, and then they're able to see a whole different thing. And that's the way it is with our children, it's with our church, with everything. Constant in his love for both, on one now understands that love and relishes it and lives in it and thrives in it. The other still fails to understand it. What does this teach us about worth? Our worth? It's not the responsibility of the Father to make it right for us. It's just the responsibility of the Father to love us. We have to be willing to accept that. Right? Okay. Here's another example about self-worth in the Bible. In the, you, anywhere in the Bible, you'll find stories about self-worth. <clears throat> Here's the story of Abraham. He's called in the Bible the father of the faithful, a friend of God. And you know what it means to be a friend? It's really a friend knows what's in the heart of the other friend. Each know each other's heart. And there's an obligation, if the friendship is going to be maintained, that that be continuous that they always know what's in the other person's heart. Someone who understands is a friend. And so somewhere along the line, Abram had learned about a promised Savior. Remember, Abraham went up to the mountain every day and had an altar, and his son would come with him, and he would talk to this God, his friend. And somewhere along those lines, he had heard about a Savior. I think all of the patriarchs knew about that. Everybody since Adam had known about that. 
And he longed to know more about that Savior. He longed to see him. In fact, when Isaac came along, it kind of was a type of that Savior. He was a long-awaited promise, a long-awaited promise. And the impossibility of his birth, there were some parallels there, weren't there, with Isaac and Jesus the same way? And so this, this man had this unbelievable urge to understand. How do we know that? Read John 8, 58. Abraham desired to see my day, and he saw it, Jesus said. So God gave him eyes to see way before his time. And what Abraham, uh, what God did with Abraham, he wanted to show him not just the Old Testament God uh, or Jesus as a baby. If he's really as a friend to understand about the Savior, that's what Abraham wanted to know about, he had to show Jesus on the cross. And you see the picture there? How do you open up to somebody 2,000 years before an event and to get them to understand an event that was so long in the future and to show them how that would affect them even though it had not happened? And so you remember what God did. God is so amazing. He told Abraham, Take now thy son who is now a young man, not a baby anymore, not even a young lad. He's a grown man. Thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and offer him for a burnt offering. Now, I want you to get the connection here. Abraham wanted to see the Savior. He wanted to understand that about the Savior. God is answering the prayer, helping him to see, and this is how he's going to do it. Go up to Mount Moriah. I want you to offer your son as a sacrifice. Experientially, he had to live this out with his son to understand what God was living out with his son, Jesus Christ. That's what friends do. Now, how does this affect our self-worth? Intensely. God was going to show Abraham a picture, as you see. The impact of God's love changed him to the core. He was about ready to bring the knife down upon Isaac to take his own son's life. He was stopped in the process because now he understood. He had seen something. He had experienced something. He was changed. Just like that prodigal boy coming back home. He was changed. And now he was able to see, understand, and experience something he could not experience before. And for the rest of Abraham's life, his self-worth went through the sky. Why? Why would that affect his self-worth? This is not a hard question. Why? Why did that vision, Jesus said, he longed to see my day, and he saw it. Why did that change his life? Jesus dying on the cross says what? Uh, yeah, that's the value that God places upon Abraham and on Isaac and on all of us. Because we're not going to do what Jesus did. He did it for us. Isaac didn't have to do that. Abraham didn't have to do that. The Father and the Son did that. And what a joy that is. There is nothing that can teach us the value 
quite like that. So God wants us to understand that. Now, I want to tell you some other things here. It's about the Apostle John. By nature, he was proud and ambitious. With James, his brother, they presented the mother's request that they be granted the highest position. So in their mind, these two boys, if you want self-worth, you've got to be in top position. Favorite pastime of Jesus' disciples, and you can believe that James and John were right in the middle of this discussion. While Jesus was selflessly ministering to everybody and going to go to the cross selflessly, always this discussion just about a few feet behind him, chronically, who's going to be the greatest? It's amazing how terrible weak we are in self-esteem and worth. Well, Jesus reproved him, Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. Only those who are small in their own eyes will be accounted great in the sight of God. I have discovered that God takes this very seriously. Maybe you have too. Ever felt yourself being pushed down? Being made smaller? (laughs) Being almost made insignificant? Ever felt that? Worthless? Well, maybe we were trying to find our worth somewhere else and God has got to do for us like he did with that prodigal son. So we'll go home and suddenly discover what our real worth is in the eyes of God, the only place where we can know that. And here, Jesus loved John, and so Jesus tells them, you know, if you want to feel like you're worth something, it goes only to those whose joy comes from seeing souls saved, despite whatever shame and cost this might bring them. And so he said, you do not know what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of? We want self-esteem. We want to feel good of ourselves. But God is saying, all right, are you willing to pay the price? These guys were chronically problemed in the area of self-worth. They were talking about it all the time. Pretty good evidence they didn't have it, right? You know. Are you able to drink the cup that would take you to feeling forever your worth? Jesus said. Well, he honored their request. They did become part of the inner three. They were the closest to Christ. And he gave James the honor of being the first martyr and John the last surviving of the disciples. That's our Jesus. Wonderful. By nature, he was quick to resent any slight and injury. He reproved a man who was casting out devils in the name of Jesus because he wouldn't connect with the disciples, and so Jesus reproved him of that. He wanted Jesus to rain fire on the Samaritans for not welcoming Jesus. Jesus' response was, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Father, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. John was transformed. Now, I'm saying this early stuff about John so you know where he came from. God, in almost all of our lives, has to take us from our own reckless pursuit for self-worth, always in the wrong direction, and he's got to turn us completely around the only place where we can really find it. 
And so John, perfect example of that, these two brothers, James and John. The sacrifice for our salvation transformed John. He was lost in amazement as he studied Jesus every day and discovered who he was all about, what he was all about, and what God had done for us, and that such a gift could be refused by others. He found he couldn't even comprehend that. So the sacrifice that Jesus caught his attention, that's worked with me too. I've told you stories of that, but there's a lot of them. You've got your own stories. Obedience, Jesus' obedience. Now here was someone who could have had the esteem and did have the esteem of angels. He had everything that anybody could ever aspire to, left it all, came to the earth, became obedient. God, Jesus as God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, now coming as a servant to his father. Wow, that struck John. Jesus says, I have kept my father's commandments. And that made John obedient too. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, John said, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Being in a life of obedience helps our self-worth, surprisingly. And the other thing was humility. Uh, he refused to say of himself that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was just the disciple whom Jesus loved. He finally was different. Sacrifice of Jesus changed him. The obedience of Jesus made him obedient. Humility of Jesus made him humble too. What a journey from where he was at. John the Apostle was transformed by love. Love. The disciple whom Jesus loved. He was originally a son of thunder. He learned to love like Jesus. His writings just breathe of the spirit of love. Selfless in his service for others. Loving others as his master had. It was because of Jesus' love for him. John put it really clearly. We love him because what? Yeah, it's a response to him. And that's the way it works. That made, us, uh, that made him a lover of others too. If any man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Love of his brother whom he hath not, if he can't love his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love the father who he hath not seen? If God loved us, we ought to love one another. He was, his was the love of a repentant sinner. So, you could see that in John, very insecure about his self-worth, Exposure to Jesus changed him completely, confronted his weaknesses, caused him to surrender to Christ completely and be attracted by this amazing love that Jesus had. And somehow he learned his value. It was totally different. Love satisfies our souls. We are made to be loved. It's an inner hunger that we all have. It removes all the barriers and protections that we have placed upon ourselves to protect us from hurt, from failure, from abandonment, from feeling unsafe. It takes away our fears. What does this? Love does this. And serves to immunize us against what previously destroys us or has destroyed us. Love provides resistance and strength and a capacity for regeneration. We can't live without love and without which our resilience to life's adversities just simply crumble in front of us 
It causes us to focus on avoiding pain if we don't have love rather than experiencing joy. If we don't have love, we allow our negatives to have more power than our positives in us. Love is extremely essential to curing low self-esteem and to giving us a sense of worth. And what greater place can you go to than to the Bible and to God to learn about love? I think that there are people in the sanctuary today that are plagued with low self-esteem. Almost always when you have a group of people like this. And you fight this battle from all different directions to try to feel better about yourself and escape depression. Which totally immobilizes us. And what we need to do is look to God. And just consider, just consider what he has done. And then the love of God will find its way into our heart and will change depression and help us to move in the direction of joy. It may not do everything. Some depressions are pretty intense. But this is the direction that God has provided for us to go to make the difference. It empowers us to be what we are meant to be. And the picture that God has of us becomes our picture in our own brain, not based upon or influenced by what other people think. This is our true sense of worth. Enables us to be happy and joyful, optimistic, fearless, confident. Now, are we going to need these traits in order to survive? Are we going to need these traits in order to be successful in life? Are we going to need these traits in order to win others to God? Absolutely on all of those points. Absolutely. The devil's going to attack. We have to attack this back by taking care of our self-worth by keeping our eyes fixed upon God. Only he can establish our real value. It, enable, it enables us to enjoy the fruits of the Spirit and to think clearly and to know truth. It frees us from being a passive victims or simply spectators in life. And it frees us from becoming isolated from God or our fellow men and mindlessly following others. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Love makes all the difference. Christ's favorite theme, I like this quote. There's a bunch of quotes on the back of your bulletin, by the way. Um, his favorite theme was the paternal character and abundant love of God. Who picked up that theme? John. He picked it up more than anybody else. He spent so much of his writing talking about love. He was, his life was famous because of his love. This guy who just went a few feet behind Jesus was constantly thinking about himself because his esteem was so bad. Now it was just overflowing. Abraham was overflowing. Uh, that prodigal son came back overflowing too. This knowledge of God was uh, Christ's own gift to men. And this gift he has committed to his people to be, uh, be communicated by them to the world. The world is waiting to be told their worth. The deep love of God alone will sustain the soul amid the trials which are just upon us. Isn't that a great quote? Nothing else. It's the deep love of God. So how much are we worth? How much are we worth? How much are we worth? Are we worth? 
So how much are we worth? We are worth what Jesus is worth. Is that right? And if we're worth what Jesus is worth, how does God feel about us? The way he feels about Jesus. And if we can know that, then there's a slight chance, a pretty good chance actually, that we can communicate that to everyone around us, especially our families. And I want to tell you, more than anything else we do, this is the most important thing we can do. This will bring souls to the kingdom. This will give victory in people's lives. It will release them from unbelievable pain and empower them to live a powerful life, a useful life. This forever settles the question. Our worth is not $10 million, $7 million, 6.9, certainly not a buck. Our worth is in astronomical terms. How God feels about Jesus is the way he feels about us. We must bathe in that, luxuriate in that, just swim in that, expose ourselves to every part of what that might mean and let it change our hearts. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you that... You have been giving this message to your people all through time. There is a real loud counter message meant to defeat it. And it is very successful. Because so quickly we can take our eyes off. Where our true value is. Help us to keep our eyes there. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.